Our scripture reading for today is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Listen now to the word of the Lord. The resurrection of Christ. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you. Also with the you. The Lord bless you. Thank you. <laughs> Happy Easter, everyone. Um, before I begin, I just want to say thanks uh, to our pastoral staff, uh, Pastors Dohi, uh, Danny, and Eric, um, and also all of the readers, the singers, the artists for our Good Friday and Eastern Dawn services. It was so great to uh, worship with so many of you um, in those services uh, this week. Please pray with me now. Mighty God, we bless you because according to your great mercy, you have caused us to be born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And now in the hearing of your word, help us to be reassured of your power and love. And in that blessed assurance, help us to be your faithful witnesses to and in the world. Amen. This morning, like every Sunday morning, I, along with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, which you didn't. This gospel I preached to you is the same gospel the Apostle Paul preached, and it is the same gospel that the church has been preaching for 2,000 years. And the gospel is this. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. There are similar descriptions of the gospel elsewhere in the Bible, but this passage is especially important 
because chronologically, this is the earliest statement of the gospel that we have in the Bible. The gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for example, were all written after Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians. Since this letter was written less than two decades after Jesus' death, we can be confident that this gospel in this creedal formula was already a tradition and in circulation soon after Jesus' death. And some of the phrases that Paul uses, according to scripture, on the third day and the twelve, these are not found in his other letters and writings and further indicates that this gospel is something that he has received and not something that he has made up and that it has been something that has been around for a while. In other words, you and I can be assured that the gospel is not something that was made up later by the church or something that grew into a legend decades later on. It was there from the very beginning, even before the four gospels were written. So what is this gospel which Paul and the Corinthians received? Paul makes four crucial claims, which he calls of first importance. First, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Christ died for our sins. He endured the agony and the humiliation of the cross for a very specific and clear reason. It wasn't because he wanted to set an example. It wasn't because he was powerless and overcome by the forces of Rome and religion arrayed against him. It wasn't because he failed to realize some political ambition or revolution. Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. For example, Isaiah 53 prophesied, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. There are many today who prefer to position Jesus as a moral teacher, as an example of nonviolent protests, as an inspiration for loving others. Certainly, he can be those things. Jesus showed us a way of living, of serving, of loving that we should imitate. However, his life had a far deeper purpose than that, and his death was not an unfortunate tragedy of a good life cut short. He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That is, his death was the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation and redemption, even before the creation of the world. As Ephesians 1 tells us, God chose us in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. We become holy and blameless because of God's choosing of Jesus Christ for us. This is the gospel. This is the good news that in Christ's death, our sins also died. By his death, we have healing and eternal life. 
because of his death, we are no longer under the judgment of sin and death. This is the good news of great joy for all people. This is why we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Greeks, and offensiveness to modern ears. Christ was delivered over to death for our sins, according to the scriptures. Secondly, Paul says, the gospel says, Christ was buried. Christ was buried. It may seem redundant to say that Christ was buried after saying that he died on the cross. However, that he died for our sins places the emphasis on why he died, but that he was buried puts the emphasis on the reality of his death. In the city of Corinth, there were some people who thought of themselves as the super Christians. They thought of themselves as more spiritual than others. They claimed to have superior spiritual knowledge and understanding in all things related to the spirit. They thought that they could transcend their bodies and the limitations of their physicality. For them, the idea that Jesus, the one and eternal son of God, that he would actually die and be buried was simply unacceptable. They and others since then denied the reality of Jesus's death, that he only seemed to have died. How can God die? Or that somehow he only died symbolically. But anything less than a real death contradicts the historical witnesses of even non-Christian historians like Josephus and Tacitus, who acknowledged that Jesus was crucified and died. We also have the witness of the 12 disciples and the women who followed him. They all saw that Jesus really died and was buried in a tomb. The 12 disciples were so certain that Jesus died that they all abandoned him. It's important to establish his death as a historical fact. Otherwise, the resurrection doesn't make any sense. Now, there will always be people who will not believe anything, no matter how convincing the argument is. But throughout history, everyone has accepted these first two claims of the gospel, that Christ died and was buried. And many have even conceded that at least it was understood or believed that he died for our sins. But as Paul puts more succinctly in Romans 4, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The gospel does not end with death, nor even the death that leads to the forgiveness of sins. Jesus died for our sins and he was resurrected for our justification. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. This is the third and most central and challenging. I hear you. Christ was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Christ was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. 
This is the central message of the gospel. Notice that the gospel doesn't even mention any of Jesus' miracles, his exorcisms, or even his teachings. The core message of the gospel is not love your neighbors, as important as that is, but that Jesus died for our sins and has been raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, just as God had promised. Before we get to any sort of ethical demand from God on how we ought to live, we have the declaration of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, just as God had promised in the scriptures. The scriptures, here meaning the Old Testament, doesn't use the word resurrection, but hints of the resurrection are scattered throughout. For example, in 1 Samuel 2, it says that the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Job 19, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Isaiah 25, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Isaiah 26, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. The gospel, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a continuation and fulfillment of God's dealings with his people. The redeeming love of God for his people culminates in the saving act of Jesus on the cross and then being raised in power. The grammar here is very important. For example, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it says that he was raised in the simple past tense. It means that Lazarus died and then he was raised once and that's it, meaning he will die again. But in regard to Jesus's resurrection, the grammar is in the perfect tense. The perfect tense conveys a completed action that has ongoing results. So rather than Christ was raised, it means something like Christ has been raised. He has been raised to new life and continues to be alive. He is risen and continues to be risen. And as Jesus has been raised, Paul will later argue in this chapter that we too who are in him will also experience a similar resurrection. The resurrection, of course, is not easy to believe. We should not, however, mistakenly think that ancient people were less educated without the benefits of modern science and thus more likely to be duped or to believe in the supernatural things that we might find less believable. In regard to the resurrection, the people of Paul's day may have been even more skeptical than us. N.T. Wright, for example, has a massive 800-page book on the resurrection. And in it, he explains that both Greco-Roman culture and Judaism did not believe in any sort of individual or bodily resurrection. Some Jews did believe that there would be a renewal of the whole world at some point, but the idea of a single human being being resurrected before that time was simply not something that anyone had imagined.
Even those closest to Jesus, even though Jesus talked about the resurrection repeatedly, did not understand or comprehend what he was talking about. It was simply beyond their imagination. The resurrection is hard to accept then as it is now. But at the same time, it does not mean that it's something that must be believed by sheer and blind faith. While there is no way to definitively prove the resurrection, there is no definitive way to prove most events of history. But there is more than sufficient evidence that the resurrection is not only reasonable, but the most reasonable explanation of what happened. And this is part of Paul's fourth claim about the gospel. He says that Christ appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Today, just as in the Corinthian church, because the resurrection is so hard to believe, many deny the historicity, the historicity of the resurrection. People suggest that instead that the language of resurrection is merely an expression of theological faith dressed in mythological clothes. People argue that some sort of subjective experience of faith, that is something that people just sort of thought about or believed, was transformed over a period of time into a false and yet objective reality. The Jesus of history, the Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross, but the Christ of faith somehow lives on in some metaphorical sense in the faith and in the memories and in the lives of his followers. And I tell you, no, absolutely not. That is not what happened. That could not have happened given what we know. I don't know about you, but I do not want to build my life on an imagined or metaphorical resurrection. Our faith, if it means anything, is rooted in an historical event. The resurrection is not wishful thinking. It is not a metaphor. It is an event of history. And like all events of history, it cannot be replicated, but it can be known and trusted that it actually happened. Paul says, consider these witnesses. After he was raised, Jesus appeared to Peter and to the 12 disciples. These were men who did not expect the resurrection. These were people who ran away and had no anticipation that anything else would happen. Jesus also appeared to James and to all the apostles and then to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. And then last of all, he says, Christ also appeared to me. This is a public letter that Paul knows will be read out loud to everyone in Corinth. And he's saying, if you don't believe me, you can ask all these other hundreds of witnesses to the resurrection as most of them are still alive. It might be easy to dismiss Paul's own claims if there were only a couple of other witnesses. 
but it's hard to dismiss more than 500 witnesses. And Paul's list is only a partial list of Jesus's resurrection appearances and interactions. Most notably, Paul leaves out the very first witnesses according to the four gospels, the women. There may be many reasons why Paul did this. He may not have been aware of their testimony or he may simply have left women out because that's what men often do. More likely, it seems to me, is that in Paul's day, women's testimonies were considered unreliable in court. And so including them here would not have bolstered his argument. Now consider this, the gospel writers who all wrote after and later all indicate, all are clear that women were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. That's quite remarkable. And it gives us great confidence that the gospels are true. While it makes sense to leave out women as witnesses, it makes no sense for later writers to add them in as witnesses. It would only weaken their argument. It would make the resurrection seem even more implausible. And so the only good explanation why the gospel writers would include them is that it must have really happened. They were willing to be ridiculed and dismissed by stating the truth of what happened. Most of you are probably familiar with this saying. Once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. I believe it was first said by Sherlock Holmes, but I encountered a version of it first in C.S. Lewis and then in Star Trek. So you know it's got to be a good quote. Over the last 2,000 years, numerous explanations have been offered to dismiss the resurrection, that it's merely a legend or myth or conspiracy. People have said things like, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He was only badly injured or that he faked his death or that the disciples conspired and pretended he rose from the dead, that they stole and hid the body or that the disciples went to the wrong tomb and that's why it was empty. Or that the disciples, including 500 people at once, had a mass hallucination. Or that the church simply made up this legend of the resurrection in later centuries. Yet, when put under even the slightest scrutiny, these alternative so-called explanations require far more blind faith than to believe in the resurrection. In his book, The Rise of Christianity, the agnostic sociologist Rodney Clark estimates that the number of Christians rose from roughly 1,000 people or 0.0017% of the Roman Empire in the year 40 to nearly 34 million people in the year 350 or 56% of the population. How did it go from a thousand people 
to more than 34, to nearly 34 million people? How did Christianity so rapidly expand where so many other religious and spiritual movements collapsed? Even during Jesus' day, there were a number of other movements, other men who claimed to be the Messiah, to whom powers of exorcism and other miracles were ascribed. Yet those movements all ended when the Romans executed their leader. The Jesus movement should have also ended with Jesus's crucifixion. And yet it did not. Why? Rodney Stark says this, as a matter of history, scholars agree that the two oldest pieces of New Testament tradition speak to Jesus's rising from the dead. Without the resurrection, it is virtually impossible to imagine that the Jesus movement of the first decades of the first century would have long endured. Similarly, the New Testament scholar, Bishop N.T. Wright also concludes in surprised by scripture, no other explanations have been offered in 2000 years of sneering skepticism against the Christian witness that can satisfactorily account for how the tomb came to be empty, how the disciples came to see Jesus, and how their lives and worldviews were transformed. Faith is far more than giving a mental nod of approval to the resurrection as a historical event. But it is not less than that. Without the resurrection, our faith crumbles. As Paul goes on to write later in this letter, without the resurrection, we are of all people to be most pitied. But Jesus has been raised and his life is the ground for our living and our future hope. You may have seen the Gallup poll earlier this week that showed that for the first time in 80 years, less than half of Americans said that they formally now belong to a house of worship. In 1937, 73% of American adults said that they were officially members of a church. Today, that number is at 47%. It's a number that continues to decrease as membership numbers skew toward older generations. Similarly, Drew Dyke in his book, The Leavers, Young Doubters Exit the Church, notes that young adults are dropping religion at a rate five to six times higher than in previous generations. The reasons why they are leaving are complex, but as the title suggests, they are doubters. I know that it's especially hard to believe anything these days. It's easy to doubt what people tell you. It's easy to doubt the church. And it's easy to lose hope. I don't have some new argument this morning to convince you of the gospel. And I know that my own life has not always been the best demonstration of the truth that I proclaim. But I would humbly and once again, 
point you to Jesus. See the good news of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. This is a trustworthy statement. I pass unto you what I also have received. And you and I, we are the ongoing witnesses of the resurrection. We have this treasure in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ demonstrates the power of God and assures us of the forgiveness of sins on the cross and of life everlasting in being raised from the dead. The resurrection is God's decisive and gracious act in history for us. Before anything and everything else, the gospel, the resurrection tells us that God has acted for us. Jesus died for our sins while we were still sinners. And Christ is risen that we might live with him forever. Believe the good news. He is risen. Hallelujah. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. Strengthen us to know that the gospel is true. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he has been raised and lives forever now and always. And help us like the first eyewitnesses to bear witness of your resurrection. Help us to confess along with St. Hippolytus of Rome. Christ is risen. The world below lies desolate. Christ is risen. The spirits of evil are fallen. Christ is risen. The angels of God are rejoicing. Christ is risen. The tombs of the dead are empty. Christ is risen indeed from the dead, the first of the sleepers. Glory and power are his forever and ever. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, who lives now and forever, and who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. As lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. From thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.